There's a beautiful saying that uh, I like to quote, which goes like this. If you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. If you want happiness for a month, get married. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. And if you want happiness for a lifetime, help somebody. And I think it's beautiful and it's inspiring. And it applies to all of us, regardless of how much or how little we have. I think all of us have experienced some form of joy after we have helped someone or after someone has told us that they they have found us very helpful. But the reality is that the opposite is also the same. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, everybody. Today, my guest is Jenny Santi, a philanthropy advisor to some of the world's most generous philanthropists and celebrity activists. Jenny is also the author of the acclaimed book, The Giving Way to Happiness, Stories and Science Behind the Life-Changing Power of Giving. Jenny works with philanthropists to make their aspirations become real, and she explores how giving changes the giver. Winston Churchill once said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. After earning her MBA and working as a management consultant, she found herself working in Singapore, where she became head of philanthropy services for UBS, a bank which is the world's largest wealth manager. She led these philanthropy services in Southeast Asia for families and individuals who have investable assets of $50 million or more. She developed relationships with the world's leading change makers, including philanthropists, celebrity activists, nonprofit leaders, and other visionaries. And in 2013, she started her own firm, Saint Partners. After she got a call from the Han Foundation, as in Goldie Han, Goldie wanted to know if Jenny could help her family with their philanthropy. And in this conversation, we explore what it means to give, about how giving changes the giver, and how we can give even when we don't have millions and millions of dollars, how we can still practice finding purpose and joy when we share what we have, whether it is money, expertise, time, or love. In this book, in this conversation, we explore the five things we get from giving. Jenny combines scientific research with a large number of interviews, personal anecdotes, some of the people that she talked to in researching this book. Of course, Academy Award winner Goldie Hahn, Nobel Peace Prize winner Muhammad Yunus, supermodel Christy Turnington Burns, Teach for America founder Wendy Kopp, philanthropist Richard Rockefeller, environmentalist Philippe Cousteau, activist Rico Berry, 
best-selling author Isabel Allende. So many, many people from all over the world with diverse backgrounds who have all found unexpected happiness and fulfillment through their giving. Also, toward the end of this interview, Jenny opens up and shares something that she's only recently begun to talk about, which is her experience with clinical depression. I think her humility and her vulnerability are extraordinarily powerful. I also love that before writing this book, Jenny didn't know much at all about publishing, didn't have a background in this or connections in this world, but as she describes, it became obsessed with the idea of writing a book, wanted to make a contribution to others in this way, and she did. And to me, that's so inspiring. And what she shares about what she learned in the process, especially if you want to write a book, I think you'll find valuable. But honestly, even if you don't, just that drive to share what one knows with others uh, is pretty extraordinary. Also, Jenny is an animal lover, a student pilot, and a global citizen who's called Manila, London, France, Singapore, and New York City home. She also is an accomplished artist. I'm so grateful that my path has crossed with Jenny Santi. Oh, and Deepak Chopra wrote the foreword for this book. Even Deepak's thoughts in the first few pages of this book are worth the price of the book, but it's truly an amazing and inspiring piece of work. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Jenny Santi. Jenny, welcome to the School for Good Living. It's great to be here. Thank you, Brian. Jenny, tell me, please, what's life about? Wow, that is a huge question. The first thing that comes to my mind is that life is about what we make of it. Because isn't life just the sum of the little moments that we have and the decisions that we make and the people we surround ourselves by? I think so, certainly. I know that's a big question. And it is my favorite question for Uber drivers. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I love about that question is I, I learned so much, not only from people's responses, but from how they answer, mm. right? Like people will say, you mean life or my life, you know, ah. something like that. But at any rate, let me go right into your book, The Giving Way to Happiness. I've read almost all this book. We had, we set up this interview on fairly short notice, which I'm really grateful for you to, to grant me this interview. So I didn't finish the book, but I read the beginning and I read the end. I read more than two thirds of it. At any rate, what I want to ask you is who did you write this book for? Why did you write it for them? What did you want it to do for them? Sure. I was obsessed with this project from the time that I thought of it. The, the reality is that I thought of this and I just had to do it regardless of the fact that at that time, I didn't even know how to begin. I had no contacts in publishing. I had never written anything bigger than a, a report, maybe a, a business plan of some sort. I didn't really even know the difference between a publisher, publicist, editor, agent, all those personalities that I, I eventually came to know in, in, the, in the writing, uh, uh, in the book world. And... I was actually inspired when I realized through the course of my work, I have this very unusual kind of job where a lot of it has to do with philanthropy and making philanthropists' aspirations become real. So in the course of doing that, I met a lot of very 
heroic people doing amazing things. I met a lot of nonprofit leaders, very committed to their causes. I met a lot of philanthropists who were very generous with, with whatever they were doing to make a difference in various causes. And I knew that most of the attention that we pay when we, when we um, hear about these things, most of the, the attention goes to how these efforts or how these people change the world. But I knew from my job that giving changes the life of the giver. I've seen that so many times in the private conversations that I've had with these people. And I've seen how people are transformed by their own giving. And I was just so compelled to write about it because I, I knew for sure that it, it was not something that was, was commonly discussed. And my goal was to write this for a wide audience for, for, for an audience of people who wanted to do something with their time, their talents and their treasures, regardless of how, how much, how little they had. So this is not something that I wrote for the very wealthy set, even though that's, that's the area that I've, I've become associated with when it comes to my, my professional life. But this is really for, for anyone who wants to make a difference or anyone who has found themselves on this path where they're giving a lot and they, they want to make, they want to get more out of it, get more satisfaction, get more results. And also probably for those people who have found themselves disillusioned, dejected, or possibly even burnt out by their own, their own acts of generosity. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. So to give the listener a bit of context, let me ask you, who are you and what do you do or what have you done? And I know, and I just want to preface that by saying, I know that any answer anyone would give to that question is so far short of who we really are, whatever we really <laughs> are. So I'd like to ask the question this way. When you are introduced or when you introduce yourself, someone asks you, who are you and what do you do? How do you like to answer that question? I usually like to answer that question by well, I usually like to avoid answering that question by describing my profession immediately. Because one thing I've, I've observed in, in our culture here in this country and, and in also many parts of the world is that we so immediately define ourselves by our professions. And when we go to a party, uh, when we go meet someone for the first time, perhaps in a, in a, in a cocktail or a conference setting, the first two questions are inevitably, what's your name and what do you do? And I've reached the point when I've, I'm almost put off by that. And I think the reason I'm, I'm averse to that is I think it just, it just makes us very judgmental, if not openly or outwardly, subconsciously. Once we hear what someone does for a living, we begin to put them in buckets yeah. in our mind. We yeah. say that, oh, okay, so this person is not very interesting to me because his work has nothing to do with whatever I'm interested in. Or, oh, this person can, can buy my product. Or, oh, this person can introduce me to someone that I've wanted to meet because, because of my, my business, my product, my services. And, and it, it all becomes a very transactional economically motivated exchange. So I read this somewhere recently that instead of asking people, what do you do or where do you work? 
you can ask them a question like, what do you like to do? Hmm. And that would give you insight as to who this person really is. Yeah. So let me ask you that question. Maybe that's a better question. What do you like to do? What do I like to do? What are you passionate about? What are you curious about? If there's something you're working to master, what is that? <laughs> I really like having deep connections with people. I'm a bit of an introvert, regardless of the fact that for work, I, I often have to speak to an audience, sometimes a very public audience. I, I like having a, a very in-depth one-on-one conversation. You're in the right place. I'm in the right place, except <laughs> people are listening in on it. But it's, it feels, at least for now, a very private conversation. I, I like art. I like expressing myself through painting. I'm drawn to things of beauty. I, I love meeting people who are a source of inspiration and energy. And I love to laugh. I think I have a bit of a, a wicked sense of humor, which gets me into trouble a lot of the time. Give me an example. Are you sure about that? Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't know how much this, this podcast allow, but let me ask you. We'll bleep any F-bombs. You can say whatever okay. you want. All right. But <laughs> okay. So what do you call a line of people outside a Vietnamese noodle shop? Tell me. Fuck you. <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, when I met you, I never would have expected you to tell me a joke like I that. I know. Don't be fooled. <laughs> so tell me about growing up because we've known each other for eight hours now. <laughs> now we've maybe nine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you shared with me some of your experience growing up in the Philippines. Yes. Tell me what that was like. Well, the Philippines is a, is a beautiful country and it's a, it's a hot spot now for tourism and it's home to, I think what's, what's been voted over the last few years consistently, the most beautiful island in the world, Palawan, you know, but, um, this, is where, I, I, this is where you grew up right there? I didn't grow up there, but, but I grew up in a country where there's a lot of beauty and Unfortunately, it's also a place where there's a lot of poverty. It's a developing country and that's just a reality. And I, I was fortunate to be part of the, the more, they say they're the, the haves and the have-nots. I was, I was privileged to be part of more of the, the former than the latter. And yet I saw the conditions of the poor every single day. It was just a part of life. It was not hidden from my view. It was visible when I was a child, uh, on the way to school, we would see street children, beggars knocking on the car window, inches away from my face. And then that was practically a day-to-day -day occurrence. I would see news of, of calamities and how many more people got displaced from their homes and all sorts of horrific things like that happening to people who were not very far away from me, literally, literally just living steps away or a few minutes away from where I was living. And I think as a child, I didn't really know how to process that, but I think it planted the seed of idealism. So later on, after my college years and my postgraduate degree, I started working in, in consulting, but I didn't find that very fulfilling. And I was really... I was really curious what could possibly be out there 
that would allow me to make a difference, but also honor the unique abilities and interests that I have. And I was I was fortunate to have had a lucky break that led me to this kind of role that I have now in, in philanthropy, in working with wealthy families and individuals, public figures, and helping them turn their philanthropic aspirations into action. And what was the lucky break? The lucky break was that, you know, UBS, a Swiss bank, right? They, yeah. they have a division called philanthropy services. And I didn't know this at that time when I, when I first heard of this, but there are arms in, in private banks that, that cater to the needs of, of these very privileged, successful entrepreneurs, individuals, families who, who made their own wealth or, or inherited wealth and specifically helping them figure out matters that relate to their giving. So it's all about, let's say, how to structure a, a philanthropic foundation, how to start a family foundation or a family charitable trust. And that was my job. My job was to work with those people to make those things real. And I've been doing this now for the last 12 years. I'm no longer with, with a bank. I'm doing this on my own together with my business partner. We have a company called St. Partners. And, you know, being an entrepreneur is, 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 very, is very difficult and challenging, but, but I think it's great that whatever I do, I'm able to really express who I really am makes me th which makes me now think why why do I not like to talk about my profession anyway I just I just don't like to be boxed in because there are also lots of other things that I'm passionate about yeah I'm such that as, same way such as art and writing and and animals also I'm I'm crazy about yeah I know you you shared with me before we began the recording that you lost both of your dogs within the uh, last yes. year I'm really yeah. sorry to hear that it's very sad yeah well, having and you live in the city. You live in New York City. Yes. And you have big dogs. Two golden retrievers. Those are big dogs for New York City. I know. I had, you know, things happen in New York City that probably don't happen in other parts of the world That's because for people sure. <laughs> people live very busy lives and and there's a really, I guess there's a sense of community there that that might surprise people who don't live there. Mm. I moved there five years ago after living in Singapore for seven years. And the reason why I had two golden retrievers in a one bedroom apartment in Manhattan's Upper West Side is that I actually had a co-parent. I had a co-parent who, whose original owner or, or, or the original person to these two dogs but he was going through some life transitions. Uh, he, he just got divorced. His kids were moving out of their apartment. He had downsized from this large, I don't know, five bedroom apartment to, to more of like a bachelor pad situation. And as a result, he, he just had to keep his dogs mostly in doggy daycare most of the wow. day. And when I met him, actually I met him because we were both actively involved at that time with the Desmond Tutu Peace Foundation, which is another thing I want to tell you about. You know, when, when, when you're working in philanthropy, when you're volunteering for causes that you care about, you meet these people who become such important parts of your life. And then I met my, 
I like to joke, I met my baby daddy. <laughs> you know, I call him my baby daddy. We we had these two dogs and he's he's a dear friend. And yes, we, we co-parented those dogs. It was a beautiful experience. Wow, that's great. So I wanna ask you, I wanna ask you more about the work you've done in philanthropy and I wanna turn it in a way that will benefit the listener beyond interest or curiosity it might satisfy. And what I mean by that is, I think there might be a perspective for many people that philanthropy is something only the rich or the ultra wealthy engage in. People like, I understand many of your clients without naming names are rock stars, you know, other artists, athletes, very successful business owning families and things like this. So some of society's 1%, mm-hmm. right? And as you said, just a few minutes ago, who you wrote the book for, you know, was really anyone who wants to be more fulfilled from the giving they do. And, you know, no matter how much we have, we can give something, right? So I guess where I'm trying to steer this is maybe there's a part of me that's looking to shape a perception. And I don't know, this is even a useful course of conversation about what philanthropy really is and and why it's important, but more like even beyond that about giving, you know, whether we, we have great wealth or not. Mm-hmm. And so I want to, I want to ask you about that. What have you learned? What's the question I want to ask here? It's something around what have you learned about giving that's applicable to everyone, not just those who have amassed a great fortune. Sure. There's a beautiful saying that, uh, I like to quote, which goes like this. If you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. If you want happiness for a month, get married. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. And if you want happiness for a lifetime, help somebody. And I think it's beautiful and it's inspiring. And it applies to all of us, regardless of how much or how little we have. I think all of us have experienced some form of joy after we have help someone or after someone has told us that they they have found us very helpful. But the reality is that the opposite is also the same for anyone giving big or, or, or little amounts. The truth is that giving can also lead us to feel depleted and burnt out and taken advantage of, whether it's because we feel like People are asking us for money all the time. There's an endless stream of solicitations. Or we begin to feel a sense of compassion fatigue because we see so much tragedy going on around us. Oh, there's another hurricane. Oh, there's another homeless person. There's another public shooting. Exactly. Oh, there's another public shooting, right? And we become so desensitized to it. So how's that? I mean, on one hand, you say, Giving is the most wonderful thing you can do and helping someone will make you so happy for the rest of your life. But come on, the truth is, no, it's exhausting. And I think that's something that everyone has felt in every demographic. And that's something that I'm also very curious about. And, and I cover, I, I've covered that in my, in my research and my writing. And I'm happy to share with you a few things that I've learned along the way. Please. Yes. One thing is that it's become evident to me that the number one reason why people 
feel burnt out or, or find themselves in this situation where they feel very depleted, it's not because they've run out of money or they've run out of time, but it's because their giving is not aligned to their ultimate passion in the first place. That the giving has started maybe because they were just forced into it. They were trying to avoid embarrassment and thus wrote a check. They were trying to save face, so they showed up and volunteered for this certain charity, but their heart was not really into it. And so as they keep doing this over and over again, as they are asked for more time or more money, they feel less and less interested in it. And is that what you mean? Is that a symptom of compassion fatigue or an example, or is it something different? Is this a symptom in, in a cause? I, I mean, you, you get fatigued by something because you weren't interested in it in the first place. You do it once, it's no big deal. You think, oh, it's just a check. It's just a one-off. Sure, I'll volunteer. But if you don't really feel a personal connection to what you're giving to or what you're spending time on, sooner or later, you'll just feel like, you know, I've had enough of this. This is really not worthwhile. This is just either a waste of time, a waste of money, and you don't want to keep doing that. And it's not a source of joy. Yeah. So how, okay, so how can we find or create that alignment then? It's all about finding your passion. It's all about taking the time to be deliberate about it and taking the time to step back and ask yourself a series of questions, really, and just observe yourself. What are the things that really move you? Mm. What are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things that you really feel so passionately about that no matter how hard it becomes, you will keep fighting? For me, for example, it's all about animals. I will never get tired of animals, of helping animals. I will get exhausted sometimes from, from volunteering or, 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 or being, I don't know, just picking up dog poop when, I, when I'm spending time with these animals. I think it's pretty easy but, to get tired of that. Exactly. Even but, if you are aligned with your passion. <laughs> I will always, I will always want to be around animals and I will always want to do something to help them out. But uh, that explains so much in your book, you write about the bear farms in yes, China yes, and about the dolphins. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty remarkable. I would imagine, especially if you went firsthand and investigated this or just talking to people who are working on the front lines of this, that that, will you talk a little bit about, about how you have pursued your passion, not just for animals, but by sharing with others about giving and what you learned in those, like talking with Rick and is it Peggy? Sure. I, I spoke to a lot of people in the course of writing this book and it's been a few years since, since that all happened. Uh, but these are things that happen to me pretty regularly as a result of the profession that I've, I've chosen and I've, I've, I've found myself in. When I speak to those people working in the front lines of, of very difficult, emotionally charged situations and challenges, animal welfare, animal rescue is one. What else is, is an example? Is they, dealing with survivors of abuse or, or rape or horrific things like that. You can imagine that it's not always a very happy setting. It's probably going to expose you to a lot of very shocking things. And 
it's going to be very upsetting. And maybe you'll be traumatized by some of the things you'll see. So can you imagine if you didn't care about those things so passionately? Can you imagine what that will do to you? It will probably make you a very resentful person. It will probably make you just walk away at some point and, and just turn around and say, I've had enough of that and yeah. it's really not worth it. Yeah. What else has stood out to you or what else have you learned on your journey of interviewing so many people? Because in this book, as you mentioned, you must have interviewed 50 people you know, who are, or more, maybe many more. And I'm actually going to preempt my own question because there's one in particular that selfishly I want to know more about, which is Muhammad Yunus. Mm -hmm. When you had the opportunity to be with him before an interview. Yes, yeah, so that was, that was a room. funny experience because Muhammad Yunus, who is a, a Nobel Prize winner for his work in microfinance, he's a very, he's, he's treated like a celebrity. And, and I'm, I love that, that that's the case because Look at this. It's it's a uh, uh, he is a he is a professor. He is he is someone working in microfinance, but his command of a room and and, and his presence and, and and how he is sought after is pretty much like like how people treat celebrities. And I think that's really cool. I think that speaks a lot to how people these days are searching for meaning and inspiration. But when I met him, he was in, in, a, in a very busy, it was a very busy day when the only time they gave me to speak to him was when he was having his makeup done in preparation for an interview at CNN and also joined him in the car on the way to another venue in, in, in Manhattan. Yeah, anytime so. I think I'm busy, <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna keep this in mind as a reference. Like, like no, I, I have 15 minutes I understand he actually spent about five hours with you. But, something, but, something definitely more than 15 minutes, yeah, but when maybe he says, two hours. I yes. will talk with you while I'm being makeuped exactly. in preparation for my national TV appearance. Like that, that is amazing. And what a commitment he has also to sharing Isn't what he that knows. crazy? Right. Yes. So what did he, what did he tell you? Well, I remember asking him a question regarding something he, he said before. He said that he's always happy. He said he's just always happy. And I, I asked him, how is that possible? How is it possible that you're always happy when you're working with people in the bottom of the pyramid? And, and isn't that what his work is all about? Uplifting people from poverty. So I imagine, oh, that must put you in some really dire situations where you, you see how the poor people live and, and you go to some really glum places. It can't all be that fun or glamorous or, or even comfortable. And how are you always happy? How could that possibly be? And he said that helping others is super happiness for him. He called it super happiness. And he said that one of the reasons that he finds it very fulfilling is because of the approach that he chose to take, an approach that is very sustainable. It's not something that makes him depleted because it's not about an endless solicitation for funds and an endless trying to find where to get the money, trying to find the donations for this and that, but really all about empowerment. 
and really all about finding solutions to problems through social business. And that was what I thought was so remarkable. That yes. Here was somebody who engaged in, basically invented microfinance, mm-hmm. right? Which he, in his humble description says, it's just lending money to poor women. Exactly. <laughs> right. But I was so intrigued by what you said, not only about his view of super happiness, but about business as the approach to a sustainable and fulfilling way of going about helping people to live great lives. That's the approach that works for him. And, you know, another thing I learned is that there's no cookie cutter approach. We we are very different from, from one another. And what might work for you might not work for me. What causes I'm passionate about, you might not even care about. The things that that make me come alive probably bore you. And, and, and that's okay, that's okay. But the key things are to really pay attention to what are those things that, that really do interest us deeply and, and organically. And another thing that I would say is that it's so important to give your time. Give your time because it's really the best expression of your, your care and concern for something. And, and you know, the, the fact is that we don't all have the same amount of money to give because there are people who are rich, people who don't have much, but we all have the same amount of time. We all have the same 24 hours in a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it's up to us to decide how much or how little of that time we devote in service. And in the process of of doing that, I know that we will discover that it, it becomes very fulfilling when we spend time on those things that really resonate with us and we really care about. Before we move completely away from from Muhammad Yunus, I, I just want to to touch on this other part that you wrote in the book that I thought was really interesting and really beautiful, where you describe him saying that there are two things inside of us, selflessness and selfishness, mm-hmm. and that economic theory has been based on the selfishness part, not the selflessness part just yet. That's mm-hmm. part, of what, part of what he told you. But that aspect of selflessness and what you're saying now about giving time, right? It's relatively easy to give money relatively easy. And I know many people, many people seem to have this notion that, oh, if they won the lottery, if they had a big windfall of some kind an inheritance or, you know, their business blew up and they got a big payday or something, then they would give. Mm -hmm. Right. What I think is interesting is to not in a judgmental way, although I hear the judgment in the question is I wonder with those people, well, what are you giving now with what you have? And proportionately, is it equivalent to what you think you would give when you had this big payday? You know, do you see that as well? That people maybe who are less willing to give now, like that there's not some magical day where it becomes easier to give, you know, and, and I'm asking kind of a clunky question here. So, so let me just pivot that question for a minute. But I remember something I heard Tony Robbins say once mm-hmm. when he said, we, we never get beyond scarcity. Mm-hmm. We have to start beyond it. And I was like, what does that mean to start beyond this idea of scarcity? But what have you seen when it comes to people's mentality with, with giving and scarcity with wherever they are, not just ultra wealthy, but the average person? I think 
sometimes we think that when we will give something or we give something of ourselves and we've lost it, we've lost something, we have less wow. money, we have less time, we have less of something because we gave it away. But what I've found is that there's so much that we get from giving. Yeah. And let me just share with you my five categories that I've observed as I spoke to all these people and then work with, with many different people in the last decade or so. One is about how giving helps us find our purpose in life. And isn't that something that we all ask ourselves on the darkest days? Like, what, what is this all for? What's the purpose? What's the point? Yeah, I've noticed when things are going well, I don't tend to be asking exactly. that question. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, for sure. So you're saying, what do you call these things? There's five. The five, five things that you get from giving. Okay. Yes. So number one is a sense, a sense of, purpose. of purpose. Yeah. Yes. Number two is that it elevates your career into not just a job, but a calling. When you choose to do something that has some kind of social purpose, that allows you to give back or that allows you to make a difference in the lives of others. And again, isn't that something that we all question? Isn't that something that we're all concerned about? Because we spend so much time at work and we try to find fulfillment in the kind of work that we do. What I've found is that people who have work that somehow makes a difference in the lives of others have a higher sense of fulfillment in general. And it's amazing. If we if we look at it that way, you know, if you give if you give something of your, your career towards service, you get so much in terms of fulfillment, which is something that so many people search for. Yeah, for sure. So a sense of calling. A sense of calling. Okay, what's number three? The other thing is that giving or, or, or giving to something that, that we feel very passionate about allows people to heal from very painful experiences that they've experienced in their own lives. So you're saying this helps givers. Givers can heal through their giving. Givers can heal or, or overcome tragedies and traumatic experiences that they have gone through by helping others who are going through the same things. And we see these things in, for example, the methodology of Alcoholics Anonymous, how people would, would come face to face with their own addictions by being someone's sponsor, by being there for someone who's going through the same thing. Yeah. And what do they get in return? They stay sober. Yeah. They they are reminded of why they are doing this. And I think it's such a beautiful thing. That's just one example. But other things like there are many examples of wealthy families, for example, who who set up foundations in the name of a loved one that they lost to cancer or diabetes, uh, other other diseases, and and commit a certain amount of money to help advanced science in that particular in that particular field to find a cure for that disease or, or to provide medical assistance to families who cannot afford the treatment for that disease. And I think it's just really beautiful and it helps make it helps make people who have suffered or, or who are grieving make sense of what they've gone through. Yeah. And that in a way relates, I think, back to the first thing about purpose or meaning, right? So that healing as a process of giving meaning to what someone has gone through or what someone has lost. 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what's number four? Number four is how giving allows us to meet incredible people whom we otherwise would not have met. Like our doggies, like our like, baby daddy. Like my baby daddy, yeah. right? And So I would call a, that, I'm sorry to jump in. Yes. I would call that making friends. Make, but, but what do you call it? Just making incredible connections? Making, or? making friends and, and just finding love in some yeah. ways. Okay. That's a pretty big benefit. That's a huge benefit. Because if you think about it, there's a very different dynamic in someone you meet in, for example, uh, a racing uh, day or, or a car show or, yeah. a, or a yacht club or someone you meet at a bar, at a club for a fun night out. There's a very different dynamic among the people you meet in those settings. And I'm not saying it's, it's a bad dynamic. I'm just saying it's a different dynamic. Yeah. From someone you meet in the context of your charitable work yeah. or someone that you meet in the context of your, your, your giving, your, your voluntary work, or even someone you meet at a f philanthropy conference. Yeah. It's just a completely different level altogether. Well, well, and I saw that in your book with this story, which I didn't know, with Wendy Kopp for Teach, Teach for America. Yes, Teach and for America's founder, Wendy Kopp, actually met her, her dear husband, I can't remember the specific story, but but they met in this context where they they were both serving. And, yeah, because and of because of her work. Because right? of he, her work, he applied. Met ah, her. Now I remember right? the story. Then, yes, that's and it. then in your book he tells the story about how many other marriages have ah, come out yes. of all the teach Thank force. Thank you for reminding. Right? It's funny how yeah. sometimes you don't remember what oh, you yourself. Wrote. There's so much, and I know you <laughs> you took a period of years. You know, to write this. So, but I was just. I was just struck by how what you're saying here. I love when you said it's not just friendships and connections, but also love. Yes. And then right here in your book, there's a touching example, both of someone who's making an incredible, a couple who's making an incredible impact around the world through their organization. And one of those benefits that they probably didn't intend when they started was that people inside their organization would also connect and have yes. start their own families. There should probably be a dating app for that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Philanthropy. Through love or something, love. Something, something. <laughs> yeah. Which I love too. What you shared earlier before we started recording about the etymology of the word philanthropy, the root meaning of the word. Will you talk briefly about that, and then we'll come back to number five? Sure. When we hear the word philanthropy these days, it's, it's become synonymous to big ticket gifts, like. Oh my gosh, Warren Buffett giving billions of dollars to the Gates Foundation or Bill and Melinda Gates committing so much money in pursuit of, of a cure for malaria. And it sort of makes us feel like, no, we're not philanthropists or we're not capable of, of philanthropy because that is not within our reach. Mm -hmm. But if we look at the etymology of the word philanthropy, it really simply means the love of mankind. Philos means love, anthropos means mankind. And so it's that simple. It's our expression of love for one another in the way that we, we, we serve each other, we help each other, we, we are there for each other. I, I just think that's so beautiful. And it reminds me also, I love the quotes that you put in your book. There were so many that I hadn't heard. And I am a, I am a quotation connoisseur. <laughs> I fancy myself that. But I, I used had... to have, when I, was in, when I was in high school, grade school, I used to have a notebook where I would write all the quotes that I found very touching. And I 
That doesn't surprise me because you include so many great ones in here. And, and there's just a few, this one by mother Teresa that I think is along the lines of what you're saying now, that it's not how much we give, but how much love we put into giving. So beautiful. Let me take us back to number five. So tell me what's the, what's this fifth thing we get when we give. Hey, thanks so much for listening to part one of my interview with Jenny Santee. Tune in again next time as we finish our conversation. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.